as king over Israel. Up until this point, only Samuel and Saul know that God has indeed chosen Saul to be king over Israel. Now the time had come for there to be a public presentation of Saul as the king whom God had chosen to rule over the nation of Israel. So Samuel summons the people to come to Mizpah to hear from God. 1 Samuel 10, verse 7. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. On this occasion, there is no Ark of the Covenant. There had been in the past, in this particular gathering, there are not even any sacrifices that are being offered. And yet the stated purpose was that they were to gather together in order to meet the Lord. I can only wonder how many people had truly gathered with the sincere intent to meet the Lord that day. Keep in mind the spiritual climate of the time. The people had already rejected God as their king. They had publicly rejected the ministry of Samuel, refusing to listen to the words of Samuel and to repent at the message of wanting a king. And it's in that atmosphere that Samuel is calling the people to meet with the Lord. Were they really gathering expecting to hear from the Lord? Or were they gathering together merely to hear the words of Samuel? It might be a good spiritual exercise for us this morning to reflect a moment on our own gathering together for worship. When you were getting ready this morning, and as you were driving here with anticipation of entering into worship this morning, were you cognizant of the idea that we have gathered together to meet with God, to actually encounter God? I think everyone here knows Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, in which Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of you. Do you, by faith this morning, accept the fact that Jesus is mystically present with us this morning? And that we meet with him today as we gather together in worship in a way in which he does not meet with us in our private devotions, in our own intimate, personal relationship with him. Worship is a unique time in which we gather together to meet with God. We also know that the Bible is the word of God. I think everyone here this morning would affirm that truth. But are we cognizant this morning as we open that word and as we expound it today that we are actually hearing God speak to us? Or are we merely anticipating getting a few insights from the pastor, a few ideas and takes of how he approached this particular portion of scripture? Or do we really think that God is intending to speak to us today? to help us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to give us his message for each and every one of us. It's so easy 
to talk in spiritual ease. <laughs> but it's quite another to really comprehend and to have active faith in God. So as the children of Israel are meeting together <laughs> to meet with God, in reality, that's not particularly what was in the back of their hearts and minds. So this morning, the theme is God's grace that's manifested in the public announcement that Saul is to be king over Israel. And I chose that word carefully when I said manifested. I previously was going to use the word revealed, but it's more than just revealed. It's more than just God showing us that he is gracious, but it's actually that God was gracious. He manifested his grace. He met with them in a gracious way in his pronouncement of Saul as king over Israel. So this morning we want to look at the way in which God manifested his grace in the revealing of Saul as king over Israel. So first, God's grace in having Samuel review Israel's obstinacy in wanting a king. God's grace in having Samuel review Israel's obstinacy in wanting a king. As they gather together, the first thing that Samuel does is that he reviews what the Lord has done. There is a reminder of the goodness of God to the nation of Israel in delivering them from their enemies in verse 18. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Remember that I am the one who delivered you. Remember that I am the one that helped you. Remember that it is through my power that you were brought out of the land of Egypt, and it is by my power that you are now in this promised land. Land that you are now in this area, and the kings around about you have been defeated by my power. And then Samuel reviews what the people had done that is, they rejected God as their king. They were now substituting their trust in God as their deliverer for trust in an earthly king. Verse 19. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, Samuel had already made that same point in their last public gathering together in chapter 8, verses 6 to 22. And I won't recount that whole incident, hopefully you remember, but in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, Samuel said, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So we ask ourselves, why the repetition of this unhappy thought at the time of Saul's coronation? Why did Samuel once again bring up the fact that the children of Israel had rejected God as their king as he is going to announce this new king. One might view Samuel's reminding the people of their obstinacy as being rather politically incorrect. After all, that's kind of a downer on the day that the king is going to be revealed for the first time. Here is the king <laughs> that you demanded and that you refused God 
for. Why would Samuel do that? Was that a great insensitivity demonstrated on Samuel's part? What motivated Samuel to reiterate Israel's failure? Well, the answer is given to us in the text in verse 18, and that is, he's merely doing what God had have him to do. Verse 18, he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord. This is God's word. This isn't Samuel's. This isn't an agenda that Samuel had established. This wasn't a thought process that Samuel worked through. It wasn't that Samuel had some kind of agenda that he was trying to achieve that day, but Samuel was simply presenting the word of God to the people of Israel. And an application we can make is that as preachers, we should not be declaring what we would want to declare, nor should we declare what people want to hear. But it is our duty and obligation to declare the word of God, to declare what God has said. And it's the obligation of those who hear to accept it as the word of God. So the better question this morning is, not why did Samuel review the rejection of God as king, but why did God want on this solemn occasion to begin with the review of the people's rebelliousness? Well, here we see the relentless nature of God's word. That in itself is a matter of grace. God repeatedly confronts us about our sins, about our disobedience, about our lack of faith, about his goodness, about his power, about his grace in dealing with us in times past. Repeatedly, over and over and over again, we hear the same truths in Scripture. We should be grateful that the Word of God is constructed in such a way that it repeatedly and relentlessly reminds us of who we are and who God is. This also provided an opportunity for the people of God to repent, to hear once again that they had rejected God as their king, and so now here was an opportunity to seemingly repent and acknowledge that they wanted God to rule over them. However, it seems as though the die is cast. It seems as though it's too late for that. God has already privately announced that Saul is going to be king. He's already been anointed. It seems like that opportunity has gone by the wayside. So why then would this be repeated? Answer, so that God's grace can be recognized. They are to see the grace of God, the goodness of God. Here is this God who had been faithful to them, who had kept his word, kept his promises, showed his power, and had delivered them in the past. Now, how is this God repaid? This God who had been their king, this God who had fought for them, this God who had delivered them, this God who had brought them into the land, now, how do the people repay this faithful, loving, gracious, good God? Answer by rejecting it. By saying, no thanks. We're done with that. 
We want an earthly king. We want to be like the nations round about us. Despite their defiance, and despite their rejection of him, God is going to deal with them in the most gracious way. The true king of Israel, God, is not only a powerful God. He is not only an omnipotent God. He is a gracious God and king. Gracious in the way in which he deals with his rebellious subjects. Now that's key. Now hold that thought, and I'm going to come back to it at the end. Secondly, God's grace is manifested in the manner in which Samuel publicly reveals that God has selected Saul as king in verses 20 to 24. There are some curious things in this passage, but they are very instructive for us if we take the time to look at it carefully. The first thing we want to notice is the manner in which God is going to reveal his choice as king. That's quite noteworthy. First, the lot is used in publicly selecting a king. The lot. The lot would be, as we would think of, selection by straws, okay, uh, or uh, the casting of, of lots. The lot is used in publicly selecting a king. Notice the repeated reference to the lot, starting at verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, was taken by lot. Verse 21. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the, the uh, uh, Matrites was taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. Three times it describes this process of one of casting lots. The lot was intended to give a public legitimacy to Saul's kingship. A lot was understood as a means of providentially revealing God's will on any given matter. A lot was used to determine what is God's will in this particular occasion. Proverbs 16.33 states, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. So this was seen as God's providential, sovereign oversight. This lot was more than just chance. This was God's working. The interesting point is that the people at this particular juncture in time were more willing to accept the lot as the revelation of God's will than they were to accept the word of Samuel, the prophet of God. They had more confidence in the lot than they had in Samuel and Samuel's word as coming from God. Remember that Samuel knows by direct revelation that Saul is the one who is to be king. He had already communicated that to Saul. And Saul knew that he was to be king, and yet Samuel does not disclose it. Samuel doesn't stand up and announce whom God has chosen, but rather there is this lengthy process of casting of lots until it finally comes down to Saul. Bringing all the people, this is a gracious accommodation to Israel's unbelief. God didn't have to do that. 
This is a step backwards in the progressive nature of Revelation. Better to have the prophetic word of God than to be relying upon lots. But because the people doubted God's word, he accommodated them in a gracious way and allowed a lot to be used instead. Bringing all the people together showed a selective process that indeed did single out Saul from all the others. Matthew Henry says this, and I quote in his commentary, Samuel knew all the peevishness of that people and that there were those among them who would not acquiesce in the choice if it depended upon his single testimony. And therefore, that every tribe and every family of the chosen might please themselves with having a chance for it, he calls them to the lot. By this method, it would appear to the people that Saul was appointed of God to be king. It would also prevent all disputes and exceptions. Proverbs 18, 18. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. End quote. So now we are introduced to a curious fact. And that is that once Saul has been chosen, he could not be found. Verse 21. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. He could not be found. What are we to make of that fact? Well, there are a number of ways that people have handled that particular idea of Saul hiding himself in the baggage and not being able to be found. First, a number of commentators see this as a demonstration of Saul's humility, his shyness, if you will, his reluctance to put himself forth, uh, not in a braggadocious way, and so he is hiding himself and, and waiting for uh, it, time for it to be revealed that he is king. Others see this as Saul's reluctance or disobedience. Though he knows the will of God, though he knows that he is to be king, uh, he is reluctant in uh, fulfilling God's purpose for his life. This is disobedience on the part of Saul, and he is going against the will of God. While I think there is some measure of truth in each of those views, it misses the great significance of really what is taking place here. There is something far deeper and richer going on. So follow my reasoning. Let's begin by talking about another exegetical principle in interpreting the narratives. I already told you we need to look for theme verses a couple weeks ago. There is another uh, practical way in which we need to interpret narratives of scripture. And that is we must always be aware of the interconnectedness of the narratives themselves. So often, Old Testament Bible stories are taught in isolation. They're taught as a story here, a story there, a story here. And you work way through the Bible, you know, everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, then they know the story of uh, David becoming king, and you hear these individual Bible stories. Well, we need to keep these Bible stories connected. There is a story being told. 
there is a progression of truth. There is a relationship of what precedes to what follows to what follows still. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 21, it states, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. Lot, the son of Saul, was taken by Lot, but when they saw them, he could not be found. Now that word found is something that should kind of jump out at us. Uh, two weeks ago, when we were looking at God's providence, we saw in that particular passage that the word found or find was used 12 times. I said, that's the key word, if you remember that, that message. And this was demonstrating God's providence. There are four different Hebrew words, by the way, which are translated into English as found. It is consistent in chapters 9 and 10 that the same Hebrew word is used, and it's the word that's used here. Therefore, I believe that we're to see Saul's hiding himself as a providential work of God. Now, that's not what was in the mind of Saul, but yet that's what was in the mind of God. It was a providential work of God directing the nation of Israel back to the Lord. Once again, it was a demonstration of God's graciousness to his people. Just as when Saul was seeking the donkeys, and the donkeys could not be found by Saul... So now the people are seeking Saul, but he could not be found by the people. Just as God had providentially led Saul to Samuel, now God is providentially leading the nation of Israel back to Samuel and ultimately God's word as well. Saul's hiding himself unintentionally served God's purpose of validating Samuel as a prophet and all that he had said to the people just as Samuel's message had been validated to Saul in chapters 9 and the first part of chapter 10. Since Saul could not be found, they were forced to go to Samuel. Look at verse 22. So they inquired of the Lord. The so is a therefore. It's the reason they inquired of the Lord. Why did they inquire of the Lord? Answer, because he couldn't be found. They're trying to anoint this king, but where is he? Nobody knows. They looked. They couldn't find him. So they said, well, we better find out where he is. We better ask God. So they inquired again of the Lord. That word again is interesting. It says they inquired of the Lord again. How did they inquire of the Lord? Verse 22, is there a man still to come? The first time they inquired of the Lord had been through a lot, the casting of Lot. That's how they determined that Saul was to be king. But now the Lord speaks through the prophet Samuel. Look at verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, the Lord spoke. Spoke, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Where did that message come from? Where, was it, where did it come from? It came from God. How was it communicated? Through Samuel. And know what the Lord said. Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. A lot could not reveal that 
detailed kind of information. A lot could give you a yes and no answer. (laughs) A lot could say, yes, it's this person, or no, it's not. But a lot can't communicate a place. It can't say he's hidden in the baggage. That required revelation from God. That required God telling them where Saul was. Because the people had rejected the word of God initially, God revealed his choice by means of a lot. But that was a step backwards. And so now, in their regression, in their rebellion, in their rejection of God's word, he forces them back to Samuel. He forces them back to his word. He forces them to once again come to him and ask of him concerning this king. And so God graciously tells them where Saul is. And the people readily accept the word as they run to find the new king and in fact find him. Verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. They ran. Okay, They didn't stop and say, well, I don't know. That's interesting, Samuel. God says he's in the baggage. How do we know he's in the baggage? No, they... They ran. They, they said, wow, that's where he is. Let's go. Let's get him. And they, sure enough, he's there, and they take him. And now Saul is declared king, not merely by Lot, but by Samuel's declaration, verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him? Next phrase, whom the Lord has chosen. You see this one whom God has chosen? This one whom God has given you? Not just by lot, but now by the revealed word of God. The point of this particular section then is, first, the incident about Saul's hiding himself is not intended for us to speculate over what motivated Saul to hide himself any more than the account of the donkeys being lost is intended to make us ask, why did the donkeys wander off? So oftentimes, as we study the word of God, we ask the wrong questions. And we spend our time speculating on things that are not particularly helpful and lead us down blind alleys. Rather, we have to ask ourselves, what is God teaching us in this passage? So rather than ask the question, why did Saul hide himself? The question is, why did God providentially oversee these courses of events in which a king is being revealed and that king is hiding in the baggage? We are to marvel at God's providence and ultimately his grace, his goodness. This was a blessing to the children of Israel that this king could not be found and they were forced back to the word of God in a way that they had previously rejected it. God is being merciful and gracious, leading his people back to himself and his word. Here is the relentless nature of God's word, showing even us the same truth over and over again and yet so often missed. 
I, I harped on God's providence in chapter 9. But it's so easy in chapter 10 to just forget about God's providence. Just to say, okay, that was the, that was the lesson of chapter, chapter 9. No, that's the recurring lesson and truth of God's word. That he is overseeing the acts of mankind. That he sets up kings. He removes kings. God is at work. So don't forget the lessons of providence even as we live our lives and we encounter the events and circumstances of life. But most importantly, we are to see this all as a divine preparation to hear God's word in verse 25. Notice verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the king. That's really the most significant thing that happens that day. And that is, once the king has been chosen, now the rights and the duties of this king are established. And they are established through Samuel's declaring the word of God. But they had been unwilling to listen to the word of God. So God had prepared them through this providential hiding of Saul to come to listen to the word of God. Verse 25, application. The word of God is so much better than signs and lots. That's regressive. Have you ever wished that God reveal himself to you through some particular sign or some lot that's cast? We have something so far more precious, deeper, real, and that is we have the word of God. And we have his spirit to enable us to understand his word. And we have the privilege of gathering together to hear his word proclaimed. And as a result, when we hear his, God, hear his word, we hear from God. We encounter God. He speaks to us. And he is speaking to us this morning. Which brings us to the third point. God's grace and Samuel's public charge to both Saul and the people to submit to God's authority. God's grace and Samuel's public charge to both Saul and the people to submit to God's authority. God, having validated Samuel as prophet, once again speaks to the people in verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. Again, that could not have been communicated through a lot. He's going to be talking about specific boundaries for the king. That required revelation. That required the word. Samuel is laying out how the kingship was to function. The contrast between chapters 8 and uh, chapters chapter 10 is very significant. For in chapter 8 we have a lesson on the type of king that will, will rule over them. Verse 9 of chapter 8 says, Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Show them what a king is like. Now verse 25, where we are this morning, it says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. Not the king. It's a different word. Kingship. Some translate this as... as uh, the kingdom. 
The contrast is between the person in chapter 8 and the institution, the kingship, in chapter 10. The difference is the office as opposed to the person who occupies the office. For example, we often hear the difference between the president and the presidency. The presidency is the office. The president is the one who occupies the office. What is being established here are the rights and privileges of the kingship, which the people and every king must adhere to. Here is the kingship that defines the rights and duties of any particular king. You see, they had asked for a king like the nations round about them. So God says, okay, I'll give you a king. I'll even give you a king like you want. So here's this handsome dude that is wealthy and who's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. You want a king like the nations? You got it. Here he is with all the externals that you want. They weren't concerned about the heart. Only God was concerned about that. But God in his grace kept them from having a king like the nations round about them. For in God's grace, he was going to limit the negative effects that the kingship would have upon the children of Israel. There was an objective standard of conduct that the king and his people were to adhere to in verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. Both the kings and the subjects were ultimately accountable to God. Verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. He wrote them in a book so they could objectively be referred to later. And then this, and laid it up before the Lord. So everybody's accountable to God. What is unique about this is that many of the foreign nations that were around about the children of Israel viewed their king as God. They thought their king was a god. Pharaoh was viewed as a god. And he was worshipped. In latter times, the Caesars of ancient Rome were viewed as gods and were worshipped. On his death, Julius Caesar was officially recognized as a god, the divine Julius, by the Roman state. And in 29 BC, Caesar's adopted son, the first Roman emperor, Augustus, allowed the culturally Greek cities of Asia Minor to set up temples to him. This was really the first manifestation of Rome emperor worship. The nations round about them saw their kings as having absolute authority, even to the point of being gods. God says that's not the kind of kingdom you're going to have. You're not going to have a kingdom with the king having absolute authority. He has rights, he has privileges, but they are restrictions. And both king and subject are ultimately accountable to me. That's God's grace in mitigating what they were desiring and what they were choosing. What they wanted was destructive. God says, I'm not going to let you go that far. 
I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to mitigate. I'm going to limit what is happening in this particular situation and event. How important is it that we recognize that a king is not sovereign? Well, uh, found this story in uh, Davis Dale's uh, commentary on the book of 1 Samuel. He says this. It was this idea that even royalty is subject to the divine law that led John Knox to call for charges of murder and adultery to be brought against Queen Mary Stuart in 1560. John Knox was a Puritan. And he believed the sovereign to be under the law. Knox had this strange notion that a sovereign was under law, subject to trial by law, and judgment by the people. It is our Christian heritage that has brought down to today. It was our founding fathers that gave us the concept that a president is not above the law. That there is no earthly ruler that has complete control over his people. But every earthly ruler is accountable to God. And the subjects of any earthly ruler are ultimately accountable to God. And it is because of the Christian influence and the founding of our nation that we understand that any president is not above the law. For there is a natural tendency, and we have heard the phrase, I'm sure that you have heard it, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. There is a sinful uh, tendency in mankind, and that is to overstep one's authority and to use one's power for themselves and to abuse their enemies. But God limits, so that will not take the place. God is, in his grace, restraining the sinful tendencies of kings in general, of people in authority. They had in chapter 8 a description of what a king is like, the way in which he will take, 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 take. And in chapter 10, we have a description of what the kingdom must be, and it is not that. A great lesson, the fourth section. God's grace revealed and better understood through the people's mixed response to Saul as king. Sometimes what happens after the meeting is just as important as what happens at the meeting. So here's the meeting. They're all gathered together at Mizpah, and uh, the king has been selected. And we hear in verse 24 these words. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And now these words, and the old people shouted, Long live the king! Oh, it's great! May he live forever. May we be under his authority from now until eternity. Long live the king. Sounds great, doesn't it? But what really happened? Well, what really happened after the meeting was over was that some people followed the Lord's direction in verse 26. Saul also went to his home at Dibia. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. These were 
people with whom God met and was gracious. And God did a work in their hearts. And they accepted this king as coming from God. And these were heroic individuals. And they affiliated themselves with Saul. Some of the unconverted did not follow Saul, verse 27. But some worthless fellows. Now that's important to understand. That's a, a word that means baseless. It means unconverted. And we saw it used of Eli, Eli's sons earlier. It's the same word here. These are unconverted people. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. So these are people that are rejecting. They, they're cynical. They said, how can this king save us? Well, he can, but God can, and God can use this king. But they were not in any way trying to elevate God in this refusal of giving allegiance to Saul, where it tells us that they were worthless, that they, they were unregenerate. These were people whom God's spirit had not touched. But what is most noteworthy in this particular section is Saul's response, which it's alluded to just very briefly. Verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, that Saul, held his peace. He didn't do anything about it. He didn't gripe, he didn't complain, didn't whine. He didn't punish those that did not honor him. He held his peace. In another message, we're going to see, and I will develop it in more detail, in chapter 11, there is a great victory that Saul leads the people over by the grace of God. And once that victory occurs, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12, it says this, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Saul shall not reign over us? Bring the men that we may put him to death. Who are those people that rebelled against Saul? Get him out of here! Let's kill him! How can they defy the king? But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. No man's going to die today. This is not praise to me, this is praise to God. God is the one to be exalted. God is the one who granted us this victory. And Saul was not going to be vindictive. If you know the kings well, you are going to discover, and if you've never noticed this, as you read your Bible through, notice it in Kings and Chronicles, that one of the defining factors of kings is how they respond to their objectors. How they respond to those that ridicule them and mock them. And you are going to see it's going to define a difference between the good kings and the evil kings. Some have their detractors killed. Others, like David, have their detractors spared. Application becomes a basic tenet of the Christian 
ideal that leadership is that one's critics are not to be silenced. For Jesus did not punish or even silence his critics other than in answering so wisely they could find no fault in him. Indeed, when Jesus is being nailed to the cross, remember Jesus' response? He prays. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not praying for their salvation when he prays that. He's praying for their physical deliverance. God, don't strike them dead because they're nailing me to a cross. Don't avenge their evil against me. Leadership is not about self. Leadership is acting in the best interest of those who are under their testimony, acting in the best interest of even those who reject the king's authority. But there's a great takeaway in this passage that should not be missed. Okay, There, there is a full circle, and it's why I dealt with all of this as one passage. Don't lose sight that Saul is to reflect the character of God. Saul holds his peace. Even as God the king held his peace when his people rejected him and refused him to rule over them. He didn't wipe them out. He didn't bring an evil plague against them. But in his grace, he put up with their rebellion. Even though he had been so faithful to them. Even though he had done all that he promised, all that he said. When they rejected him, he did not reject them. Even when they rejected his word, he was gracious and long-suffering with them and accommodated their lack of faith by having the king chosen by Lot. And then because God was not satisfied and wanted his people to have faith and confidence in his word, he has Saul hide himself so that they are forced to inquire of God, where is he? And to hear from God through the prophet Samuel and have the word of God validated once again, shown to be true, shown to be effectual, shown to be authoritative, shown to be of value. God then graciously mitigates their disobedience when they want a king by not allowing the full evil nature of a king to be born upon his people but instead limits the damage and sets up standards by which he must conduct himself and the people are to conduct themselves. Once again, showing that God is still the true king and all are under his authority. Conclusion. The relentless nature of God's word. How he speaks to us repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly even when we ignore it, even when we doubt it, even when we don't want it. He continues to speak to us. He continues to accommodate our lack of faith. He continues to strive with us to bring us closer to himself. God meets with us 
even when we are not actually intending to meet with him. I said to you this morning, I wonder if we consciously today expected to meet with God, expected to hear from his word, expected God to speak to us. This passage says that there were a group of people when Samuel gave the rights and the privileges and duties of the king, there were a group of people whose spirit God touched. They listened. They believed. They obeyed. And they honored Saul. Then there was this group of people, worthless people, unconverted people, who rejected, once again, the word of God, rejected the one whom God had chosen, and would not honor him. Then, of course, we have Saul, who conducts himself as a king, the way a king is to conduct himself, in forgiving his subjects, being kind and gracious to them, protecting them, watching over them. So I just say to you this morning, did you meet with God today? Has God in any way, through this message, either convicted you, encouraged you, refreshed you, enlightened you, or helped you? Has God in any way done a work in your heart today? Has God shown you something that you didn't see before? Has God shown you once again in a new way his grace and his goodness towards us, his people? If you received any benefit from this message, you in fact have met with God. For that's been accomplished by his spirit. The natural man does not receive the things of God. They're foolishness to him. So if God did a work today, it's because you have benefited in some way. And if you have benefited in some way, you've met with God. And so it's to be a cause of rejoicing. And I say to you that every time we meet together, we should expect God to work in our midst. We should expect to hear his word and believe and expect that God is going to help us, rebuke us, teach us, accomplish all that he will through his word, even as he did that great day in which the people were gathered together at Mizbah. Let us never lose sight of how gracious our king is. The passage begins by speaking of God's power. I delivered you. I helped you. You conquered the nations round about you. I think that we have a good sense of God's power. I hope we do. We talk a lot about God's sovereignty. But I hope we have an equal understanding of God's grace.
and especially his grace towards us, how often he is gracious to us, how long-suffering he is, how he puts up with our lack of faith time and time and time again, how he oversees and providentially brings us back to himself when we're apathetic and we're wandering from him. But he brings circumstances into our life, forcing us to pray, forcing us back to him, forcing us to seek him. That's his grace. He just doesn't destroy us out of hand. He doesn't reject us. But he welcomes us. And he pleads with us. And even when we make bad decisions, he intervenes and mitigates those decisions so they don't turn out as bad as they could have. Because he's a gracious God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you and we can identify with the children of Israel. For there are many times in which we fail to see the goodness that we have in your rule over us. So many times, Lord, if the truth be known, we don't want to submit to your word. And we desire to be like the people round about us. We desire what they have. But Lord, show us how long-suffering you are, how good you are, how blind we are to your goodness and grace and mercy to us that we have failed to recognize that all goodness we have comes from above, our health, our strength, our job. Lord, it's all about your provision. Lord, help us not to lose sight of what you have done so we would not wander from you. But thank you, Lord, that when we do wander, you're gracious, you bring us back. Lord, give us a sense of expectation. Help us to pray next week. Help us to consciously Say, as we get up in the morning, I want to meet with you. And Lord, I pray you would meet with us. Speak through your word. Draw us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.